0: This is the Nuance Podcast by Medicine Explained. We're your hosts, Amanda and Dan. We talk to experts on health, the human experience, and the intersection of climate and human health. We explore the nuance that's been lost in today's conversation. We don't take ads because we want to keep our information unbiased. But we do need your support. So leave a review on Apple or Spotify. And share with your friends or on social media. In today's conversation, we speak with Dr. Linda Eckert, who is a board-certified obstetrician and gynecologist, and an internationally recognized expert in immunization and cervical cancer prevention. She has worked as a consultant with the World Health Organization on global cancer prevention for the last 15 years, facilitating policy development for the HPV vaccine and cervical cancer screening. She's a professor of OBGYN with an infectious disease fellowship at the University of Washington's Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Global Health. For over 30 years, Dr. Eckert has worked at Seattle's Harborview Hospital, the largest public hospital in the Pacific Northwest, serving people from all over the globe who represent a broad spectrum of economic means and disease symptoms. Dr. Eckert also serves on the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, ACOG, expert immunization committee, and was the obstetrics lead for the global alignment of immunization safety and pregnancy program. Her areas of clinical expertise include infections in women, vaccines, vulvar diseases, cervical cancer screening, and cross-cultural medicine. She's the author of more than 80 peer-reviewed research articles, appearing in journals such as the New England Journal of Medicine. She recently wrote the book, Enough, because we can stop cervical cancer, which is the topic of our conversation today. In our conversation, we talk about what the cervix is and what cervical cancer is. Dr. Eckert shares inspiring stories of survivors from cervical cancer and what motivated her to write this book. She discusses the stigma around HPV and talking about cervixes, vaginas, and uteruses. This conversation is not only about cervical cancer, but it inspires a larger conversation about health inequities, women's health, and the health of those with cervixes. This was a very inspiring conversation, and I really hope you enjoy it. Now, on to the podcast. Hi, Dr. Ecker. Welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to chat with you about your book, Enough, and the work that you've been doing for women's health and advocacy. And I'm really excited for you to share your experience with my audience.
1: Thank you so much. It's a very much of an honor to be here.
0: Yeah. And I recorded your bio so people have heard a little bit about you, but on a personal level, uh, I didn't have anyone in medicine in my family. And Dr. Eckert was my mentor and um, my shining star through this process. So that's why I'm here today. So thank you for that as well.
1: Well, thank you. That's really an honor
0: All right. So let's get into your book. I'm really excited to talk about it. Uh, It's a very important topic and it's not talked about nearly as enough, which is the title of your book, Enough. (laughs) So what inspired you to write your book?
1: Well, Enough is a book that tries to hit a audience of the general public not a medical audience and i was inspired to write it because after 30 years of working in cervical cancer prevention either through direct patient care or working for policy or working globally or in the united states i was struck that what really moves the needle is story and it's the power of story that's quite important and so enough was a book that I envisioned when I was sitting in a WHO meeting in Geneva in 2018. And we were getting ready to launch the elimination effort for cervical cancer. And I thought, gosh, what is going to be different with these guidelines? What maybe can bring this to life? And then Then I thought, where are the women and where are their stories and how can their stories be used in a way that can help explain what this cancer is, why it's preventable, what we can do about it. And so that was my initial vision was I need to write a book that collects stories from women around the world that are relatable to women and Not just women, actually, I'm using that term, but I really mean individuals with cervixes, as we all know that not all identify as female. And how can their stories, together with information that's written for the general population, make a dent in this preventable cancer?
0: And I would love to talk about some of those stories. But first, just to lay some background,
1: what is a cervix? What is cervical cancer? thank you for that question and i think that's really important because it brings to the fore the idea that you know we have certain things in our culture we don't talk that much about and the genital tract is one of them the cervix is the opening between the vagina and the uterus it's what opens so that a baby can come out the uterus into the world and it has cells that line it that can become impacted by human papilloma virus and become precancerous cells and eventually become cancer. So you can get cancer in this part of your body that's the opening between the uterus and the vagina, and that is called cervical cancer. So every
0: single person with a cervix starts to get pap smears at the age of 21. And it's pretty Incredible that most of the patients that um, I see in clinic who are 21 and are starting to require the screening haven't ever heard of a Pap test before or Pap smear. It's just not something that is in our general education. Or so, what is a Pap test? What
1: is it for? What is screening? Yeah, thanks. Screening is the idea that you can detect something and have an opportunity to do something about it before it becomes problematic. So. Cervical cancer is, in a sense, ideal for screening because it has sometimes up to a 15 to 20-year period when you're developing the pre-cancer changes to full-on cancer. We use pap smears as one of the tests to try to detect when there's abnormalities at the cervix before they progress to cancer, and it's performed by typically going to a person who's comfortable placing um, a speculum in the vagina. A speculum is something that almost looks like duck bills, actually. And it holds the tissue of the vagina open so that you can see the cervix at the end of the vagina. And they use Q-tips to collect sample of cells that are lining the cervix. You put those in a vial and they get sent to a lab and analyzed to look for any pre-cancer changes, and that's called a pap smear. Uh, since we started doing pap smears in this country routinely, which was about the 1970s, you know, cervical cancer rates have dropped by over 70%. Wow. Um,
0: one of the questions I get from patients who have never experienced a pap smear and would be very helpful for also um, people in the audience who don't have cervixes, but does
1: it hurt? So... Well, that's uh, also an individual question. Most, I like to think as a gynecologist who does this all the time, that it is so unusual to have a pap smear hurt, but it is uncomfortable just to have something placed in your vagina and you do feel pressure. And sometimes when you have a Q-tip touch your cervix, you might feel a little bit of a scratchy feeling or occasionally a small cramp. But I always tell my patients that if this is hurting, you need to tell me this This should not be hurting. It doesn't, doesn't need to hurt.
0: Um, and now I think, I, and I'm really interested to get your perspective on this too, because it's a very new and up and coming field, but are there self-swabs now and wh- what is that going to look like?
1: Yeah. So there is an ability to collect a swab in your vagina and place that swab in a tube and even mail it in to get a screen. There are parts of the world that are doing that. And, you know, I was just at a meeting last week, a very exciting meeting, actually, where it was announced that in our country, there's many sites that are going to start trialing this. It's wonderful because you don't need a speculum. You don't need an experienced provider. It is, though, challenging because you need follow-up and you need good communication and you need a system that is going to help track those results and be able to get in touch with you if there's something abnormal that you need follow up for. So, it's going to be a real help. I think it's a fabulous thing, but it certainly needs some care and infrastructure in how it's rolled out.
0: So, we have the pap smear for screening. How can we
1: prevent getting this cancer? A good question. So, the prevention is Primary prevention, which is to prevent the human papillomavirus or HPV, which is a virus that's very common. Over 80% of adults have it. And human papillomavirus is transmitted sexually. And by the time someone has had three sexual partners, over 50% of people have HPV. So HPV is essentially just a marker of having sex. The good news is that most HPV goes away on its own and your body will get rid of it. But what we're looking for when we screen is when the HPV is lingering and persisting. Now, primary prevention is preventing those HPV infections that can cause the precancerous changes, and that is done with the HPV vaccine. And the HPV vaccine, if it's given, especially before sexual activity, but even later, can prevent up to 90% of cervical cancer. And so it's an incredibly incredibly potent tool that's been well tested used all around the world now for almost 20 years we have incredibly good data on its safety and how well it works and just last week Scotland published a paper that you know they started vaccinating in 2008 and of the individuals that have been vaccinated they've had zero absolutely zero cases of cervical cancer. So it's really an amazingly effective vaccine. Uh, the other thing you can do is use a condom that prevents 60% of HPV transmission. There's still some transmission because there's parts of the genital skin that's touching even though the shaft of the penis might be covered with a condom. but uh, it, you know that is another way to do what we call primary prevention and primary prevention is the preventing of HPV infection itself. Then secondary prevention is when you have HPV and now you're trying to prevent it from causing mischief with precancer or cancer. And so that's what we use pap smear screening for is to look for any changes that might suggest that there's uh, some problems happening. Another um, thing that we're using now is HPV DNA testing itself. And that is a newer test, but it's very accurate, where we actually use a swab to test if you have human papillomavirus of the types that can cause precancerous changes. And, you know, we just talked about self-swabbing. That's what the self-swabbing is testing for. It's testing for HPV. It's not actually performing a pap smear, but it's testing for the HPV virus itself.
0: So if you were to do that swab and you are positive for HPV, do they then further recommend a pap smear officially?
1: Yeah, usually they do. And there is a couple different ways to get follow-up. It depends also on the types of HPV. There's 12 different types of HPV that can cause precancer, but two of those, which are HPV-16 and 18 are the most aggressive ones, and they account together for over 70% of cervical cancer in the world. So in our country, if you have HPV 16 and 18 detected, it's recommended that right away you come in and get a really close look at your cervix with a magnifying glass called a copal and if there's any areas that look like they might have changes that you get a biopsy to make sure whether you have precancer or not. And then if you have it, you can get treated. And so the follow-up for HPV depends on the type of HPV, but the bottom line is if you have an HPV, you do get follow-up because it's important to make sure that your body gets rid of it. Mm -hmm.
0: And when I was growing up, um, the Gardasil vaccine or the HPV vaccine was only for a specific age group and usually just people with cervixes or females. So
1: who can get the vaccine now? So the Gardasil vaccine, it is the ideal age range is usually under 14. First, you need fewer doses. You only need two doses instead of three. And secondly, it works the best to prevent infection rather than treating infection. So you ideally give it uh, to younger people before they have had uh, sexual activity. We did start giving it to boys and men, and the boys started in, I think, 2012. I certainly had my sons vaccinated, and part of the reason to vaccinate boys is because most of throat cancer, 70% of it is actually caused by HPV-16, and throat cancer is hard to detect, we don't have a pap smear for the throat. So also anal and penile cancers can be caused by HPV, as well as vulvar and vaginal cancers. There's actually six types of cancers this vaccine will prevent. Because of that, the age range has been expanded. Initially, it was approved up to 26, and now it's up to 45. And between 27 and 45, it's recommended to have a conversation with your provider to see if you're a person that could benefit from the HPV vaccine. We also, if, if somebody has been treated for precancer, we would give them the HPV vaccine because there is evidence that shows that you have less chance of recurrence if you get vaccinated.
0: Hmm. And I think now is a good time in the conversation to tell one of the stories in your books. So um, do you mind choosing, I know there's so many really impactful stories, but um, do you mind sharing one of them with our listeners? And then we can continue along with some of the, the data
1: questions. Sure. I'll um, share the story of Morgan. Um, Morgan lives in Iowa. She was working as a dental assistant. Uh, she started getting her pap smears as routinely recommended at 21. She went to a Planned Parenthood. That was normal. At 24, she went Three years later, which was the recommendation for her pap smear, and this time it wasn't normal. And she was referred for further evaluation, which included that colposcopy where you look closely at the cervix and had a biopsy. And it turns out she actually had advanced cervical cancer. But when I talked to Morgan, I think one of the things that she really wants to get the word across with her story is that when she was 14 it was the second year that the HPV vaccine was offered in our country and when especially when the vaccine first started being offered you know over 80% of people turned it down they either didn't understand it or they were scared of it there was a big fear that if people took the vaccine if parents gave it to their kids their kids would become more promiscuous there were all these rumors about it So she felt like she just didn't have enough information and she didn't take the vaccine when she was 14 years old. And then when she was 24, which was pretty young, really young, actually, she got diagnosed with cancer caused by HPV-16. And so she has become a big advocate. She had really hard treatment. She ended up with a metastases in her lung and had to get chemotherapy a year later. She's kind of miraculous that she has had no recurrences after this lung metastases for many, many years now. And she's one of the what we call ambassadors or really f- prominent advocates for the group called Survivor, which is trying to decrease cervical cancer through advocacy made up of cervical cancer survivors. So she gave her story for this book and also tells her story publicly. In fact, she was just in the the Today uh, publication telling her story because she just wants everybody to get the vaccine. She didn't have enough information and she didn't take it. And then 10 years later, she got cancer caused by HPV-16.
0: Wow. Thank you to you and Morgan for sharing that story. That's very impactful.
1: And I think one of the things about cervical cancer treatment, it almost always takes away your ability to bear children because you either have your uterus and cervix removed surgically or you need radiation treatment or both. And uh, the radiation treatment also makes it not possible for you to have children as well as having other complications and side effects that can happen. And so at age 24, Morgan got treated for cervical cancer and she's still alive but she'll never be able to have children without surrogacy or, or other methods.
0: Mm. Wow. So she was based in the US, but you also have experience abroad. Can you bring in some of the um, inf- stories and experience that you have internationally in screening for cancer, for the rates of cervical cancer, and what how that has shaped your understanding of this disease?
1: Yeah. I was, you know, 25 the first time I traveled overseas to work. It was in the fourth year of my medical school education, and I had a four-month rotation in Liberia, and that was the first time that I encountered advanced cervical cancer, and that patient who her family affectionately called Mama came to our clinic and had a distinct, really hard odor coming from her vagina that is associated with tissue actually dying at the top of your vagina from cervical cancer. And so I I can still close my eyes and see her face. I can distinctly remember that interaction. And that was the first time I learned that there was advanced cervical cancer because in my prior training, I hadn't seen it. And that was also the first time I learned that there was no screening or treatment for cervical cancer in Liberia or most African countries or many parts of the world. And still globally, if you look, it depends on where you are, but some countries like India, only 2% of people get screened for cervical cancer. In sub-Saharan Africa, some countries are doing better than others, but the average is about 20% get a screen, and this is a single screen in their lifetime. And so screening is difficult to do. You need speculums, you need uh, training, you need infrastructure, you need funding. It's very difficult. The vaccine actually has better prevention potential, but that's also been problematic because it is costly. And there is some funding available that helps countries that have the lowest GDP in the world to, to get the vaccine. But there's a lot of countries that I call the cotton in the middle countries that don't get extra funding and really still can't afford the vaccine. So all of this together means actually that 90 percent of cervical cancer is found in lower resource settings just because women do not have the opportunity for any kind of prevention methods. And treatment is also very hard to come by. For instance, I worked in Malawi. They have no radiation machines in the whole country. Namibia has one. And, you know, at some point, Nigeria had two, you know, and they have this massive population. So treatment is also really hard to get. And so one of the things that the World Health Organization is really working on with this global launch for cervical cancer elimination is how can we get very accurate, low-cost HPV tests, including using self-sampling, that can be employed in low-resource settings and then how can we do treatment in a way of pre-cancer that can really make a difference? And so there are some a lot of good news about that. There's programs happening, there's a lot of training coming. And one of the things that's been really encouraging is that um, PEPFAR, which funds HIV care, has also started really pushing for cervical cancer screening and funding it. And the reason is if you have HIV, and human papillomavirus, you have a six times increased risk of cervical cancer. So HIV and HPV are terrible companions. And over 40% of the cervical cancer in many of the countries that have the highest HIV burden is in women who are both infected with HIV and HPV. So that's a very big global problem.
0: So before we started recording, you were telling me that you want your book to not just be, you know, about cervical cancer, but it's really a larger conversation. It's also about women's health. You are a women's health specialist, you're OBGYN. So what can you take away from the story of cervical cancer that kind of just generally applies to women's health both here and abroad?
1: Well, to me, if you have a preventable cancer, which cervical cancer is, and just, you know, preventable cancer. Those words do not go together very often. They're quite unusual to be able to say that. And you have tools like a vaccine screening treatment. You know you could get rid of this cancer. And it's continuing to rise and it affects mostly you know people well it affects individuals with cervix many of whom I identify as female to me this shows uh, how we value women in our society and so i talk a lot in this book about stigma about patriarchy about equity in healthcare about how we can try to work to overcome that in our country we have a lot of challenges especially in states that didn't expand medicaid and you know we've been Closing clinics um, in the name of preventing abortion, and independent of how you feel about abortion, when you close Planned Parenthoods and you close low-cost clinics, you also close cervical cancer screening opportunities. And sure enough, in our country, we're seeing that the states that have the least access um, to Medicaid funding and to low-cost screening, we actually have an increase in stage four cervical cancer in our country right now and so i talk a lot about what we can try to do to overcome that and really it's an equity issue
0: so how do we address that inequity is everywhere in the united states so what are some of the ways that we can address this
1: well i do have in the book like a large resource section and a you know how to kind of approach this that gives options one of the things i think that helps um would help screening Is decreasing stigma. And and I think a lot of people feel like if they have HPV, it really scares them. They have a, you know, what does this mean? They don't go for follow up, or maybe they don't understand the follow up, or they can't get the follow up. And so I feel that talking about the cervix, talking about vagina, using the terms, you know, We used to couldn't say breast. We couldn't say breast cancer. We couldn't talk about that. And now everybody knows what pink ribbons mean. Everybody knows what a mammogram is. The same with prostate cancer. used to be deadly. Now it's got almost 100% survival rate. And so I feel like by saying the words, cervix, vagina, talking about it, talking about how it's increasing, talking about, the screening deserts that we have. That's how we have the best chance to advocate for change. And I truly think that most politicians don't know that their decisions are killing women. Mm. And I think that as we get more grassroots advocacy and people understanding this, I do, I, I guess I'm an optimist. I really do feel hope that we can have change. And we need to have change because we haven't increased cervical cancer screening in our country in 30 years. There was just a big White House forum last week on this that I was privileged to you know, to be able to go to. So there is a lot of political will that is trying to be engendered around this preventable cancer. And uh, I talk a lot in my book about ways you can tag along with that in however you're comfortable. But I do feel hope. I feel like we can change this. It starts with story. It Mm -hmm. starts with using your voice. All of us have a story. Good grief. We can go to the soccer field and talk about, hey, have you gotten your screening yet? You know, or do you have the HPV vaccine? Or, I mean, we all have the power to use our own voices.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I I love how you address stigma at multiple levels. So you have to first start talking about the basics. What is the cervix? What is a vagina? What is a uterus? And I mean, that's why we started our, our platform as well. It's just these health inequities, especially training in Louisiana, where I saw preventable illnesses with just 30 seconds of information that just wasn't shared because nobody had access to it. So the more that we talk about it, the more folks will understand and have the motivation to follow up on something that might come back abnormal or even get the screening, be excited for their pap test, being like, oh, yay, I got mine this year and it was normal. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: And then we can help each other too. Some people don't have cars, uh, you know, or some people don't have anyone to watch their kids while they go to the doctor. So there's, you know, very simple things we can do as a community to help each other stay healthy.
0: Yeah. And I know that we also had some international programs during the COVID epidemic where we gave vaccines. So are there some lessons that we learned from this crisis that uh, we can take into the HPV vaccine uh, distribution?
1: Well, I think that yes, because first of all, you have to keep vaccines cold. So there's just a lot more ability to do that because there was a lot of machinery and, you know just equipment that was shared during COVID. Same with HPV testing. HPV testing is run on the same platforms that COVID testing is run on. Now, all of a sudden, globally, there is way more capacity to do HPV testing in low resource settings because they all had these Gene Expert or other machines given to them or, you know, started buying them for COVID testing. And those machines machines can be used for TB. They can be used for all kinds of testing. So we are in better shape in some ways because of COVID. But we also got really behind on vaccines. We got really behind on screening. And so we have definitely some reboot work to do uh, to get people back to where they can be to prevent cervical cancer.
0: Interesting. Is that something that they were talking about? At the white house as well or what are some of the ideas that were shared there
1: i think some of the ideas were shared were how to partner and use equipment and machinery that's already there how to use self-screening in a way that's feasible and uh contains follow-up How to use cell phones. There's uh, actually been a lot of work in the last few years for using artificial intelligence, looking through a cell phone so that you can point it at a cervix and it can help an untrained provider know when they need to be worried and when they don't. And that type of screening tool has been under development for almost a decade and is uh, really pushing forward and almost close to being released. So there was hope about that. And uh, yeah, a lot of partnerships were talked about and collaborations. And that's very exciting as well.
0: That is so exciting and, and awesome that you got to be a part of that. I'm not surprised, I, but that's great.
1: <laughs> I felt so uh, privileged to be there. It was really, it it, it was in it generated, I think a lot of energy.
0: Yeah. And I, I'm really excited about the self-screening opportunity because like you were saying, people just getting to their appointments is really hard. I yeah. feel like It's similar with the colon cancer screening. So we work at a a DHS clinic up in the valley, and it's pretty under-resourced patient population. And we don't do colonoscopies there unless the FIT test is positive. So the FIT test is a stool test that you just do at home. And then if you screen positive for possible blood in your stool, then you go for colonoscopy. And people are way better at following up on those FIT tests that they can just do at home instead of, even only 10, every 10 years, that's like a long period of time, but people weren't going for their colonoscopies like they needed to.
1: Yeah, I think that's a perfect example. And I think that's what it will offer. And again, you know, a lot of people have had trauma, you know, they've had sexual assault, um, different types of trauma, and having a speculum place in your vagina, going to a doctor for a very intimate type of exam is really triggering. Mm-hmm. And so it's the idea of a self-swab also, I think, can be quite liberating, or for people who have cervixes that don't identify as female, who wants to go to a gynecology clinic if you don't identify as female. But that cervix really needs care. And so I think... Self-screening has um, the opportunity to really blow the lid off of the screening challenges, some of the challenges we've had. We just have to be really careful that people get the right follow-up and the right messages about how to do that follow-up.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so we've talked about a lot of different things about cervical cancer, the screening, the prevention, the vaccine, the pap tests. Can we just lay out kind of generally and in a more succinct fashion,
1: if you have a cervix, what should you be doing? Yeah, thank you for that. So it's recommended to start screening. Well, first of all, get your HPV vaccine. That is the single best thing you can do to prevent cervical cancer, but as well as throat cancer, you know, and all other kinds of cancer. So get your HPV vaccine and tell everybody to get their HPV vaccine. And then uh, it's recommended at age 21 to start getting pap smears. Uh, There is uh, some controversy between the American Cancer Society or the U.S. Preventative Task Force. There's two different recommendations going on right now about when to start HPV testing, either 25 or 30. But it is recommended um, to do PAPS from 21 to 30 by the American College of OBGYN every three years. And then at 30, you can start doing HPV testing. And the reason to wait is because a lot of people have HPV in their 20s just because of sexual activity. And you don't want to scare people too much. You want to give your body a chance to to get rid of that HPV, but once you're 30, then it's recommended to start getting HPV testing, and then if you need it, a pap with it, and if your HPV is negative, there is practically 0% chance, it's like less than 1%, way less, of developing cancer in the next five years, so the HPV test is super powerful for screening, and that's the test of choice right now after 30
0: Perfect. And why is this important for um, people without cervixes to know about?
1: Well, sometimes people, um, well, first of all, because we're all part of a collective society. (laughs) So if you don't, if you want to know what, um, you know, women are worth, actually, every dollar spent on cervical cancer screening brings $26 back to the economy in preventing cancer, but also keeping women in the workforce, but also all their unpaid labor, which they never get credit for. So it's a 26 to one ratio of health benefit, which is amazing, amazing public health. You have an MPH. I mean, how many things have 26 to one ratios? And then, um, so we need to keep, you know, women healthy and in the workforce. And taking care of everything that they take care of and running everything they run. So this is a societal issue. This is not just for people who have a cervix.
0: Yeah. And I bet you everyone who doesn't have a cervix loves someone who is a woman or has a cervix in their family, a mom, a grandma, a partner, a friend. So everyone is impacted. Yeah. Yeah, I also love that we have to put a uh, dollar value on the benefit of a woman's body <laughs> and health.
1: Yeah, but it's pretty I, impressive. <laughs> I know. I, I I agree with you there. Uh, patriarchy <laughs> is alive and well, and to um, which is again, I talk about patriarchy in medicine and how it's impacted this disease quite a bit in my book. And I, but I do feel like if you're going to invest and you have limited resources. You do have to decide what you're going to invest in. And this is a very cost-effective intervention to prevent cervical cancer. And so I do think making that economic argument also, it makes sense. And, I think that is one of the ways you prov- you convince, you know, Medicare and Medicaid, you convince state governments who aren't funding screening, you convince uh, low resource settings to have very limited dollars. How are they going to use them? You have to say, you know, look, this is really good bang for your buck. Give this vaccine and screen and you will get all this back.
0: Yeah. Do you want to share one more story of a survivor?
1: Sure. I will share the story of um, Tamika Felder, because she was super inspirational to me for writing this book, I think. Tamika lives in Baltimore. She was 25 when she found out she had cervical cancer, which completely devastated her because she totally wanted children. And she's in my chapter where I really start talking about what you can do to get going with this, um, to prevent it. And Tamika, you know, had to end up getting a radical hysterectomy, which was so traumatic for her. And she had had a background in media and production. You know, she had health insurance. She was following up on her screens and got her cervical cancer and had to get a radical hysterectomy. And so she talks about it being a couple years to really get her feet under her. And then she realized that she really wanted to start trying to use her cancer to make a difference. So one of the first things she did was advocate for young people who get cancer to have fertility preservation paid for by state governments. And Maryland was actually one of the first states to... Mandate that insurance companies pay for egg preservation or fertility preservation for young people who are undergoing cancer treatment. And now we have 29 states that actually have been mandated by and mandate insurance companies to pay for fertility preservation. So that was one thing she did. And then the other thing she did was start this group called Survivor and it's Survivor with a C, C C-E-R-V-I-V-O-R where she got people together who had cervical cancer and convinced them that using their stories would be a way to change the needle about cervical cancer. And it was slow going at first, but they are about to have their 20th anniversary of Survivor. And it's now a global network. There's 6,000 people involved, super powerful advocacy. Like I met her at a meeting in Dubai, where we're writing HPV vaccine recommendations for American Society of Clinical Oncology, because she was there as a patient advocate. So as patient advocates, they sat on all these boards that write all these recommendations. And that was in 2015. And I think talking to her about the power of story probably put a little seed in my brain that I didn't even realize at the time, but took a while to germinate to realize that, yeah, I mean. I work in health policy, I work seeing patients, but what really changes people, it's stories. And so Survivor is a wonderful organization that I've been uh, had a wonderful opportunity to be involved with. And many of the people from my book were part of that organization, although certainly not all. But Tamika Felder, I think is one of the powerhouses in using story to change the world. And so um, just share her story.
0: It's So inspiring. Thank you to her and to you for sharing. I do want to ask you what your main takeaway is from the book Enough, because you said it is about cervical cancer, but you want other things to be addressed. So
1: what are some things you would want our listeners to leave with? Well, I think knowledge is power. And this is a book that, in uh, for the general public, you do not need medical no- uh, knowledge to understand this book. You can learn about HPV screening, cancer obstacles, uh, and how to address them. So that would be one thing. I think it's a fabulous book discussion uh, group, potentially, for a book club. If you're interested in learning more about women's health and health equity, uh, and just having conversations, uh, understanding about va- the vaccine, et cetera, and I guess the other thing is, I think it's a, a hopeful message. Yes, it's got really tragic stories. Cervical cancer is tragic and it's, and it's preventable and that makes it even more tragic. But I also feel like it offers us hope for we can really learn how to make a difference and choose how to make a difference in a way that fits us all individually. We don't have to all write books. We don't have to all start podcasts, you know, like you did, but we can do whatever works for us in our own spheres. And I think that is a take home message of enough. And the most important thing is to just join in because it's worth it. Keeping people healthy in our society, preventing those with cervixes from getting this cancer is really worth it. And we can all do our part. That's perfect.
0: And even if it's just recommending that our loved ones get screening or get the vaccine.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: And lastly, we ask all of our guests to finish the following sentence. The future is blank.
1: I think I would say the future of preventing cervical cancer is hopeful.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Eckert, for all of your work throughout the years. Um, You've really changed so many lives and including mine. (laughs) And thank you for writing this book. And I really do recommend people uh, get the book enough and read it and have discussions about it and keep talking about cervixes.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate that, Amanda. And it's wonderful to see you launched in your career and all the good that you are doing as well. It's been a long time since we uh, shared a, a house together. <laughs> it has. All right. Thank you.